More Trump. <laughs> that was at the start of the recording. <laughs> All right. Welcome to another Sunday school. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask for thy blessing upon this teaching, O Lord. Lord, help us to not make the mistakes of the past and to know how to answer so many of the things that we are seeing now. Lord, give us strength and wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul writes, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laid in with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, Afflictions which came to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. Through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Amen. We're continuing through our study of Christianity and liberalism. Our second theologian spotlight for modern articulations of Protestant liberalism. Today is Martin Luther King Jr. Our next subject in our study of modern articulations of liberal Protestantism is the great civil rights activist Martin Luther King Jr. This lecture will focus entirely upon his theology, primarily his foundational principles, and not upon his life. Most of us are familiar with the general history of the man and his work being taught every January in school, and a simple internet search would fill any gaps that you might have. It goes without saying that MLK accomplished many good things for civil rights in America. It also goes without saying that many of his efforts led to problematic results. There are many admirable things about his character as well as a multitude of moral failings. This lecture will examine neither. The primary purpose of today's lecture is to examine the thoughts of the man himself and any biographical information that we cover will be put forth in his own words. This is intentionally done to silence the gainsayers as much as possible. In our politically tumultuous day, to say anything that can be perceived as an ill word against such a man as Martin Luther King Jr. would be labeled hateful, bigoted, racist, white supremacist, and even anti-Christian. 
even if what is said is quotes from MLK's own mouth or pen. Thus, those who seek to find cause for offense and ammunition for their political agendas behind every clear statement will do as their wicked hearts and darkened minds desire anyway. We can do nothing about that. But we desire to put forward the facts themselves for the vast majority of people who have been benighted into believing the common refrain that MLK was a faithful, Bible-believing Christian. It can be authoritatively and confidently asserted that whatever Martin Luther King Jr. was, good and bad, he was not a Christian. And Christians should be wary of using his ideas as Christian ideas. I have heard many people, when met with the plain facts of Martin Luther King's heretical beliefs, still assert, no, MLK was a Christian. He was an ordained Baptist minister. And even if he was wrong on this or that small thing in theology, he was still a great man and worthy of our imitation as Christians. Thus, the goal of this lecture is to demonstrate for them and others from MLK's own theological writings that he was anything but a Christian and was in fact an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ and an agent of Satan who should be condemned in the same strong language that all haters of God and false teachers are denounced and anathematized. His theology at best was Gnostic and his cultural ethics were rooted not in Christianity but in Gandhi. Neither his beliefs nor his practices were rooted in Christianity but in heresy and pacifist social work. All of these quotes will be taken primarily from volume one of his collected works, uh, currently at a six-volume length. Uh, these will deal primarily from his theological writings when he was in seminary. A brief sketch, a biographical sketch. Again, this biographical sketch will not trace his political or personal history but from his own lips, his spiritual history. MLK's birthplace was Atlanta, Georgia, the capital of the state and the so-called gateway to the South, as he said. He was born in the late 20s on the verge of the Great Depression, which was to spread its disastrous arms into every corner of this nation for over a decade, he says. His early childhood saw the end of the Great Depression and the return of the economy. Concerning this, he wrote, quote, I can see the effects of this early childhood experience on my present anti-capitalist feelings, end quote. Yet, MLK did not grow up as an impoverished Negro child, he says. He states that although his family was not wealthy, yet his, quote, father never made more than an ordinary salary. And, quote, the community in which I was born was quite ordinary in terms of social status, end quote. There was little to no crime Problems in the, quote, Negro community he grew up in. He says, quote, No one in our community was in the extremely poor class. This community was not the slum district. It was probably fair to class the people of this, this community as those of average income, end quote. In other words, he grew up in a middle-class black neighborhood. He writes the above factors, quote, the above factors, meaning he didn't grow up with a lot of crime. He grew up in a middle-class neighborhood with middle-class people. Everyone made enough money. There wasn't any, you know, oppression, etc. These, the above factors were highly significant in determining my religious attitudes. It was quite easy for me to think of a God of love, mainly because I grew up in a family where love was central 
and where lovely relationships were ever-present. It is quite easy for me to think of the universe as basically friendly, mainly because of my uplifting heredity and environmental circumstances. It is quite easy for me to learn, lean more towards optimism than pessimism about human nature, mainly because of my childhood experiences, end quote. In his childhood, he was unaffected by poverty, crime, or social turmoil. However, even in the above quote, we see serious theological errors concerning God and man. God is merely love, and man is basically friendly. MLK had an entirely naturalistic view of religious development, even his own. He writes, quote, It is impossible to get at the roots of one's religious attitude without taking into account the psychological and historical factors that play upon the individual, end quote. So for MLK, one's social and familial environments are foundational in the development of religious attitudes, not God and the truths of Scripture. He joined the church when he was five years old, and MLK talks about his early conversion to Christianity, if you could call it that, as a mere social conformity and competition with his sister. During a Sunday morning evangelistic message, MLK went forward for salvation and Baptist and baptism simply to avoid being outdone by his sister. Quote, my sister was the first to join the church this morning. And after seeing her join, I decided that I would not let her get ahead of me. So I was the next. I had never given this matter a thought. And even at the time of my baptism, I was unaware of what was taking place. From this, it seemed quite clear that I joined the church not out of any dynamic conviction, but out of a childhood desire to keep up with my sister, end quote. On regeneration, he writes this, quote, Conversion for me was never an abrupt something. I have never experienced the so-called crisis moment. Religion has just been something that I grew up in, end quote. His dad was a pastor, so he recounts that, quote, The church has always been a second home for me, end quote. MLK bemoans his early Sunday school instruction as being based in ignorant fideism. Quote, The lessons which I was taught in Sunday school were quite in the fundamentalist line. Remember again, fundamentalism, liberalism being defined by Machen. None of my teachers ever doubted the infallibility of the scriptures. Like, that's a bad thing. Most of them were unlettered and had never even heard of biblical criticism. Naturally, I accepted the teachings as they were given to me. I never felt any need to doubt them. At least at that time, I didn't. End quote. MLK accepted what he was taught until he was at the young age of 13. Quote, I guess I accepted biblical studies uncritically until I was about 12 years old. But this uncritical attitude cannot last long, for it was contrary to the very nature of my being. I had always been the questioning and precautious type. At the age of 13, I shocked my Sunday school class by denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus. From the age of 13 on, doubts began to spring forth unrelentingly, end quote. Seems kind of like Schleiermacher, right? Hmm. So this season of unregenerate doubt did not cease in MLK, but only increased and became fortified by the liberal Protestant teaching he received upon entering college. Quote, At the age of 15, I entered the college, and more and more could I see a gap between what I had learned in Sunday school, from the ignorant fideus, and what I had learned, what is, and what I was learning in college. This conflict continued until I studied a course in Bible in which I came to see that behind the legends and myths of the book were many profound truths 
Which one could not escape? Again, the, the kernel inside the shell. The shell, the myth. You have to get to the kerygma, which is the true meaning inside. Get rid of the supernatural stuff, and you'll have a true moral teaching left. He continues, quote, As stated above, my college training, especially the first two years, brought many doubts into my mind. It was at this period that the shackles of fundamentalism were removed from my body. This is why when I came to Crozer, which is a liberal Protestant theological seminary in the South, I could accept the liberal interpretation with relative ease, end quote. So basically, his unregenerate heart longed for false teaching. And he found teachers that would tickle his itching ears. His college training solidified his doubts, which would be given a system and a body at the theological seminary Crozer. Yet, for some nefarious reason, MLK still felt called, quote-unquote, to the ministry, and he entered into seminary. Quote, my call to the ministry was not a miraculous or supernatural something. On the contrary, it was an inner urge calling me to serve humanity. At the age of 19, I finished college and was ready to enter the seminary. On coming to the seminary, I found it quite easy to fall in line with the liberal tradition there found, mainly because I had been prepared for it before coming, end quote. So contrary to Scripture's teaching on the call to the ministry, MLK thought that it was just a good office to hold in order to serve humanity. He became a wolf in sheep's clothing, in other words. His religion, whatever it was, was not Christian. In this autobiographical paper that I'm reading from, which was an assignment at Crozer Seminary, he states that even though he doesn't, didn't believe anything that is Christian, he still felt the value of religion and considered it an important aspect of his life. This is how he closes this paper. Quote, At the present, I still feel the effects of the noble, moral, and ethical ideals that I grew up under. They have been real and precious to me. And even in the moments of theological doubt, I could never turn away from them. Even though I have never had an abrupt conversion experience, religion has been real to me and closely knitted to life. In fact, the two cannot be separated. Religion, for me, is life. Thus far, his sketch. What did he believe about religion and Christianity? In his essay, The Origin of Religion in the Human Race, MLK writes, quote, The question of the origin of religion in the human race still remains one of the most insoluble mysteries confronting the mind of man. End quote. In other words... The question King was seeking to answer is, how did religion arise? What is its source? In rejecting Scripture's inspiration, MLK entertains a false conundrum. In another place, MLK writes, quote, Man is a metaphysical animal, ever longing for answers to the last questions. This, in some way, accounts for man's continual search for the object of religious faith known as God, end quote. So he starts with naturalism. All that can be known can only be known by natural revelation. Again, like Schleiermacher. Natural knowledge, the senses, the mind, the intellect, the feelings, must explain the so-called revealed knowledge. So the existence of religions and religious texts are a mere natural phenomenon brought into existence by man as a metaphysical being. The texts are made by man not by God. Thus, naturalism explains the sense of the divine, not the divine informing the natural. 
So how did religious sentiment and expression become part of the human animal? For MLK, divine revelation certainly cannot be the answer. Quote, Jewish, Christian, and Islamic theologians for a long time assumed divine revelation as a necessary factor in the rise of religion, either in the form of a primitive revelation vouchsafed to all mankind or of a special revelation to certain peoples singled out for the purpose. It is now usually held that the doctrine of revelation has, ex- has explained the origin of religion in far too intellectual and mechanical a fashion, as if religion began with the impartation to man of a set of ideas, ready-made and finished ideas poured into a mind conceived as an, a kind of empty vessel. This is a crudely unpsychological view. End quote. Now let's compare this to what the Bible says about the origin of religion and religious texts, namely the Bible. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, Knowing this, first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It's a little different. MLK then states that Darwinian evolution is a better explanation for religion in the human race. Quote, Moreover, the theory of evolution has led us to conceive of primitive man as utterly incapable of receiving and retaining the highly developed ideas which primitive revelation was supposed to communicate to them. End quote. They were too dumb to have come up with this stuff anyway. Yeah, because it's divine. Right. It was given to them. Right. So for MLK, religion likely arose in the human species through some universal experience they had. Quote, The very idea of God is an outgrowth of experience. The idea of God did not burst forth in the mind of man with no concomitant experience. On the contrary, man noticed the order and beauty of the cosmic universe amid all of its disorders and ugliness. He came to realization of his own needs and fears. He came to realize his dependence upon his fellows. And from these experiences, he framed the idea of God. But the human reason also plays, plays a role in the re- sorry. But the human reason also also plays a role in the discussion of religion. <clears throat> religion is comprehended by the reason which is ultimately informed by experience. MLK writes, quote, "If God is supreme reason, then it seems to follow that reason is the road that leads to him, notwithstanding the fact that God is far above man. The reasoner then, starts his search with the facts of experience. It must be remembered that it is the duty of reason to examine, interpret, and classify the facts of experience. In other words, experience is the logical subject matter of reason. End quote. For King, however you frame it, at the end of the day, experience, remember Schleiermacher's feeling or sentiment of absolute dependence, is the governing foundation of all religious inquiry and religious knowledge. <clears throat> After examining many possible explanations for how religion arose within the human species, King concludes this, quote, There seems to be some truth in each of these theories. None of them can be accepted as absolute. Remember, you know, the whole noble scholar uncertainty. It's, it's very humble to not really know anything. There it is. Maybe after all, we will never get at all the facts as to the origin of religion in the race. We will probably have to be content to deal with religion in terms of what it has become 
rather than from whence it came. After all, this is the true essence of religion anyhow. For MLK, we will never know how religion arose. But that's okay. Religion is not meant to be understood or put into doctrinal formulae. The true essence of religion is feeling dependent upon the absolute, not understanding it. Even if religious expression is simply the invention of a barbarous and ignorant past peoples, it's still okay. We can strip off the shell and use the kernel. Here's a quote. Well, first he says that religion, even if a superstitious expression of ignorant peoples of the past, is still useful. Since religion, like man, and along with man, is in a process of evolution. Quote, If, however, it can be proven that the origin of religion in the race was very crude, we need not despair. The question of origins is relatively independent of the question of values. If religion can be traced back to lowly origins, that should not in itself be regarded as prejudicial to its real value in the higher stages of its development, or to its relative value even at the lower stages, any more than the fact that science and art have sprung from most crude and unpromising beginnings should discredit the value of the final results or of the painful and often bungling efforts which have contributed to those results. It seems more rational to maintain that the final achievement enhances the worth of the crude beginnings than to say that the crudeness of the beginnings deprecates the value of the results. End quote. So if we cannot know from whence religion arose, then what is true religion? MLK answers, quote, First, we, must, we may say that religious experience is the awareness of the presence of the divine. Religious experience is not an intellectual formulation about God. It is a lasting acquaintance with God. So it is quite obvious that religious experience ranges from an everyday experience with reality to the very height of mystic ecstasy. Although this great range has brought about a variety of religious experiences, there is one common trait running throughout them all. Religious experience is always a, an I-thou experience. In every religious experience, the creature is standing in relation with that other than self, or other than human factor in the universe. It is the I seeking the, seeking the thou. That's the essence of true religion. Does that sound Christian? Does that sound Baptist? That ain't my Baptist. How then did Christianity arise? Christianity, like all religion, needs to embrace mystery concerning God. As Reformed believers, we indeed acknowledge the aspect of mystery. But King takes it a step further to the detriment of all true knowledge. Religion does not just have some aspects of mystery to it, but it is all mystery. That is the only truth. Religion is a search for understanding, not a coming to an understanding. Wow. End quote, or uh, beginning of quote. At least the agnostics and fundamentalists have one thing in common. They have given up the search for the eternal mystery of the universe. But any genuine Christian faith will not be content with such dogmatic assertions. It sees that there is an element of mystery both in the natural world and the unseen world. And that the search for God is a process, not an achievement. We never find all of God. End quote. Christianity's origin and development must be and can only be explained 
by the cultures it came into contact with. MLK writes this, quote, The Greco-Roman world in which the early church developed was one of diverse religions. The conditions of that era made it possible for these religions to sweep like a tidal wave over the ancient world. The people of that age were eager and zealous in their search for religious experience. The existence of this atmosphere was vitally important in the development and eventual triumph of Christianity. End quote. So Christianity came into contact with many other religions and basically just adapted them for its own purposes. Quote, These many religions, known as mystery religions, were not alike in every respect. You're going to remember this, like 2009, zeitgeist. It is not at all surprising in view of the wide and growing influence of these religions that when the disciples in Antioch, where the Bible was apparently corrupted by having stuff added to it and becoming the TR, according to also higher critics, the disciples, when the disciples in Antioch and elsewhere preached a crucified and risen Jesus, they should be regarded as the heralds of another mystery religion, and that Jesus himself should be taken for the divine Lord of the cult through whose death and resurrection salvation was to be had. That there were striking similar similarities between the developing church and these religions cannot be denied. End quote. Christianity was not just influenced by these religions, however. But, according to King, it, act, it actually adapted them. Quote, Christianity triumphed over these mystery religions after a long conflict. This triumph may be attributed in part to the fact that Christianity took from its opponents their own weapons and used them. The better elements of the mystery religions were transferred to the new religion, Christianity. End quote. So, in keeping with his Darwinian evolutionary theology, it is therefore, quote, inevitable... When a new religion comes to exist side by side with a group of religions, Christianity with the mystery cults, and members of the existing religions join the new one, that the new religion should tend to assimilate some of the elements of these existing religions. The more crusading or evangelical a religion is, and Christianity is, the more it absorbs from its surrounding religions. End quote. So it's only because Christianity assimilated the religions around it, into its doctrines and practices that it was able to survive. Yikes. Thus, according to MLK, a, quote, knowledge of the mystery religions is important for any serious study of the history of Christianity. It is well nigh impossible to grasp Christianity through and through without knowledge of these cults. It must be remembered, as implied above, that Christianity was not a sudden and miraculous transformation. But it is a composite of slow and laborious growth. Therefore, it is necessary to study the historical and social factors that contributed to the growth of Christianity. End quote. That's so Gnostic. Christianity was not given by God, but it naturalistically evolved. Quote, this is not to say that the early Christians sat down and copied these views verbatim. But after being in contact with these surrounding religions and hearing certain doctrines expressed... It was only natural for some of these views to become part of their subconscious minds. When they sat down to write, they were expressly conscious that that which dwelled in their subconscious minds. So it just kind of came out. MLK goes on to demonstrate how the mystery religions surrounding the gods Mithra, Attis, Adonis, Osiris, and Isis were all essentially absorbed into Christianity. And that all of the core doctrines of Christianity, such as Christ being 
the prophesied Redeemer in Christ, the Son of God, born of a virgin, baptized in a river by a prophet, performing miracles, raising the dead, fulfilling the law, dying on a tree for sins, being buried for three days, rising from the dead, ascending to heaven, and reigning at the right hand of the Father. God as mediator for his people. The Sunday's Lord Di- Sunday as Lord's Day, the Lord's Supper, baptism, etc. All of these things were common features to all of those religions in the Greco-Roman world. And they were either directly borrowed or assumed by early Christians. So, for MLK, there's nothing original about Christianity other than it's serving as a melting pot for all these other mystery cults. It's just one of many mystery cults. The one that made it. It's the species that went forth. MLK's Darwinianism is summated here. Quote, There can hardly be any gangsaying of the fact that Christianity was greatly influenced by the mystery religions, both from a ritual and a doctrinal angle. This does not mean that there was a deliberate copying on the part of Christianity. On the contrary, it was generally a natural and unconscious process rather than a deliberate plan of action. Christianity was subject to the same influences from the environment as were the other cults. And it sometimes produced the same reaction. Following the lead of the Apostle Paul, the Christian missionaries on Gentile soil finally made, a Christianity, made of Christianity a more appealing religion than any of the other mystery cults. End quote. So Christianity and the theology of Martin Luther King Jr. evolved into what we now know it as. The least incomplete religious expression. And it shall continue to evolve. Just like we will. And we must rejoice at this sublime reality. Quote, Christianity, however, survived because it appeared to be the result of a trend in the social order or in the historical cycle of the human race. I know what those words mean. The staggering question that now arises is this. What will be the next stage of man's religious progress? Is Christianity the crowning achievement and the development of religious thought? Or will there be another religion more advanced? Again, does this sound like Christianity? No. Does this sound like belief? No. Does this sound like faith? Does this sound like truth? Does God's truth change and evolve? Or is Christianity the true religion that's been given by God to his people? Scripture. What did Martin Luther King Jr. believe about Scripture? Rejecting supernatural origins in religion for MLK, therefore the scriptures of all religions, including the Christian Bible, can only be some of the generally accepted religious expressions of men. Modern man can no longer hold on to the old barbarous view of divine revelation in scripture. The Bible is outdated in its truth kernels. Christianity must adapt or perish. Quote, As modern man walks through the pages of this sacred book, he is constantly hindered by numerous obstacles standing in his path. He comes to see that the science of the Bible is quite contrary to the science that he has learned in school. He is unable to find the sun standing still in his modern astronomy. His knowledge of biology will not permit him to conceive of saints long deceased arising from their graves. 
His knowledge of modern medicine causes him to look with disdain on the belief that epilepsy, deafness, blindness, and insanity result from the visitation of demons. Yet he finds each of these unscientific views in the Bible. End quote. So? For MLK, if it be so very obvious that science has proven many of the statements in the Bible foolishly outdated and rooted in superstition, then what shall modern man do with this old book? How shall he view it and how shall he use it? Remember, this is what all the liberals were trying to figure out. MLK answers that higher criticism will, will lead us to a right use of the Bible. Quote, A solution of the modern biblical predicament lies in an intelligent way of handling the Bible. The interpretation of any portion of the Bible must be both objective and disinterested. All attempts to read one's own opinions and desires into the Bible and then claiming authority for them must be avoided. This, in short, is the method used in modern theological construction. For the want of better name, this method has been called higher criticism. It is called higher criticism not to suggest superciliousness and fancied superiority, as has often been imagined, but in contrast to lower or textual criticism. Instead of dealing with texts, the higher critic deals with the sources and methods used by the particular author in question. End quote. So for MLK, the question that modern man should ask of the Bible in using it is not what does the text say, nor what does the text mean, but rather why and how does the text say what it says. Quote, the purpose of higher criticism is, so, is solely to prepare the ground for constructive building. It sees the Bible not as a textbook written with divine hands, but as a portrayal of the experiences of men written in particular historical situations, end quote. Boring. I know. The Bible cannot and does not serve modern man as a collection of propositional truths from God, but as a record of human religious development. We must free ourselves from the old idea, according to MLK, that the Bible teaches us something about God. We must free ourselves from the old idea that the Bible teaches us something about God. Yikes. MLK pontificates, quote, First, we have come to see that the old proof text method of citing scripture to establish points of doctrine is both unsound and inconclusive. Secondly, we are now able to arrange the writings of the Bible in their approximately chronological order. This means that we can trace the great ideas of the scriptures from this elementary form to their point of maturity. This advance has revealed to us that God reveals himself progressively. And he doesn't mean that in a way that Reformed theologians talk about progressive revelation, where the revelation becomes more full and clear as the scriptures go on, which they do. He means that it progresses, it evolves. Again, we see that what is used and presupposed is the truth of the Darwinian evolutionist cult. MLK sets out to demonstrate that the Bible does not say anything about God. He is not revealed in it. It only says things about God or gods. Quote, First, let us turn to the idea of God. At the beginning of the Old Testament, we are immediately struck by the anthropom anthropom 
anthropomorphical, sorry, he keeps using all these weird words, anthropomorphical interpretation of God. Name, namely, he evolved, or rather, the, the, their view of him naturalistically evolved. The early Old Testament God was a tribal God. Yahweh's love for Israel was so great that it often caused vehement hatred for Israel's enemies, which is obviously contrary to Jesus' later teachings about love, right? Even more significantly, he was a God of war, battling for the triumph and victory of his people. End quote. So the Old Testament, in MLK's view, is opposed to the New Testament. And this has happened through religious evolution. Quote, in the early Old Testament, God, in the early Old Testament, God loved his chosen people, but hated his enemies. Think of the difference in atmosphere when you read God so loved the world. Compare the early Hebrew statement, let not God speak with us lest we die, with the words of Jesus. When you pray, say, our Father. As one realizes this immense development of thought, he immediately finds a growing understanding of the meaning and the relevance of the amazing things that Jesus revealed about God. End quote. What does MLK believe about Jesus Christ? MLK wrote an essay titled this. What experiences of Christians living in the early Christian centuries led to the Christian doctrines of the divine sonship of Jesus, the virgin birth, and the bodily resurrection? Gee, I don't know. The Bible? Jesus Christ himself historically coming? The Holy Spirit being given? Regeneration? Supernaturalism? God? Not for MLK. In this essay, we see how his views of theological starting points, his naturalistic theology of Scripture, and his naturalistic view of the rise of religion in the human species culminate in his doctrine of the God-man, Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. MLK explains that Jesus was fully man, and his religious beliefs must be understood naturalistically and not supernaturalistically. Quote, After establishing the full humanity of Jesus, we still find an element. In his life, which transcends the human. To see Jesus as a mere good man, like all other prophets, is by no means sufficient to explain him. Moreover, the, the historical setting in which he grew up, the psychological mood and temper of the age and of the house of Israel, the economic and social predicament of Jesus himself and his family, all of these are important. End quote. Jesus' view of himself as the Christ, or the church's view of Jesus as the Christ, can only be rightly understood in light of Jesus' upbringing and psychological temperament. For MLK, though there is something divine about Jesus, he was not himself God or himself divine. He says that the Orthodox Christians, quote-unquote, have erred here, and the fundamentalists have perpetuated this uneducated delusion. Jesus may be divine in some sense, But modern man cannot accept that he is the divine being called God. Quote, The more orthodox Christians have seen his divinity as an inherent quality, metaphysically bestowed. Jesus, they have told us, is the pre-existent logos. He is the word made flesh. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is very God of very God, of one substance with the Father, who for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary. Yes. Certainly, this view of the divinity of Christ presents modern minds with insuperable difficulties. Most of us are not willing to see the union of the human and divine in metaphysical incarnation. Yet amid all of our difficulty with the pre-existent idea, 
and the view of supernatural generation, we must come, we must come to see some view of the divinity of Jesus. So he's recognizing, hey, we've got to do something with this thing, but it can't be what Christianity's always taught. For MLK, the only tenable theology, obviously, is liberal Protestant theology. So he turns to ask the question, quote, where then can, where then can we in the liberal tradition find the divine dimension in Jesus, end quote? In other words, what is the correct view of the divine aspect of Jesus Christ? He answers, quote, We may find the divinity of Christ not in his substantial unity with God, but listen, in his filial consciousness and in his unique dependence upon God. It was his feeling of absolute dependence on God, as Schleiermacher would say, that made him divine. This is MLK's words. Yes, it was the warmness of his devotion to God and the intimacy of his trust in God that accounts for his being the supreme revelation of God. All of this reveals to us that one man has at last realized his true divine calling. Namely, that of becoming a true son of man by becoming a true son of God. It is the achievement of a man who has, as nearly as we can tell, completely opened his life to the influence of the divine spirit, or as Schleiermacher would say, the common spirit of the church. End quote. Volume 1, page 262, for the gainsayers. How did MLK view the orthodox view of Jesus Christ? Quote, The orthodox view of the divinity of Christ is, in my mind, quite easily and readily denied. The true significance of the deity of Christ lies in the fact that his achievement is prophetic and promissory for every other true son of man who is willing to submit his will to the will and spirit of God. Christ was to be only the prototype of one among many brothers. This divine quality or this unity with God was not something thrust upon Jesus from above, like God said in the Bible, but it was a definite achievement through the process of moral struggle and self-abnegation. End quote. Wow. The core doctrines of Christology, Christ divinity, incarnation, virgin birth, his substitutionary death for the sins of the elect on the cross, the resurrection from the dead, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. All of these are for MLK not to be taken literally or upheld as true statements of historical fact. Rather, we must understand and utilize their foundation, i.e. the kernel of the religious truth that they, as religious symbols, attempt to communicate Quote, but if we delve into the deeper meaning of these doctrines and somehow strip them of their literal interpretation, we will find that they are based on a profound foundation. Although we may be able to argue with all degrees of logic that these doctrines are historically and philosophically untenable, yet we can never undermine the foundation on which they were based. End quote. Concerning the divine sonship of Jesus Christ, MLK writes, quote, the first doctrine of our discussion, which deals with the divine sonship of Jesus, went through a great process of development. It seems quite evident that the early followers of Jesus in Palestine were well aware of his genuine humanity. Even the synoptic gospels picture Jesus as a victim of human experiences. Such human experiences as growth, learning, prayer, and defeat are not at all uncommon in the life of Jesus. How then did this doctrine of divine sonship come into being? Where did it come from? 
we may find a partial clue to the actual rise of this doctrine and the spreading of Christianity into the Greco-Roman world. I need not elaborate on the fact that the Greeks were very philosophically minded people. Through philosophical thinking, the Greeks came to the point of subordinating, distrusting, and even minimizing anything physical, anything that possessed flesh, and was always undermined in Greek thought. And so in order to receive inspiration from Jesus, the Greeks had to apotheosize him, make him more God and less man. As Headley, some guy states, the church had found God in Jesus, and so it called Jesus the Christ, and later, under the influence of Greek thought forms, the only begotten Son of God, end quote. On Christ's incarnation and virgin birth, MLK writes, first we must admit that the evidence for the tenability of this doctrine is too shallow to convince any objective thinker. To begin with, the earliest written documents in the New Testament make no mention of the virgin birth. He's referring to the Pauline epistles, except for, oops, Galatians 4.4, where it talks about the virgin birth. Moreover, the Gospel of Mark, Mark in priority, remember? The most primitive and authentic of the four gives not the slightest suggestion of the virgin birth. The effort to justify this doctrine on the grounds that it was predicted by the prophet Isaiah is immediately eliminated. Easy. For all New Testament scholars agree that the word virgin is not found in the Hebrew original, but only in the Greek Septuagint, Parthenos, which is a mistranslation of the Hebrew word Alma, for young woman. How then did this doctrine arise? A clue to this inquiry may be found in a sentence from St. Justin's first apology. Here Justin states that the birth of Jesus is quite similar to the birth of the sons of Zeus. It was believed in Greek thought that an extraordinary person could only be explained by saying that he had a father who was more than human. It is probable that this Greek idea influenced Christian thought. A more adequate explanation for the rise of this doctrine is found in the experience which the early Christians had with Jesus. The people saw within Jesus such a uniqueness of quality and spirit that to explain him in terms of ordinary background was to them quite inadequate. For his early followers, this spiritual uniqueness could only be accounted for in terms of biological uniqueness. They were not unscientific in their approach because they had no knowledge of science. They could only express themselves in terms of the pre-scientific thought patterns of the day. So basically, MLK takes up the church father Justin's apology, an apologetic work he wrote to defend Christianity, in which he bears upon his readers the fact that, listen, this is even known to you that Zeus's sons you know, were born from Zeus, so this shouldn't be a hard idea for you to understand that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin and is incarnate as God. Yet he twists this to make it seem like Christianity adapted this kind of thinking to make Christ divine. I mean, you can't make this up. This is what Martin Luther King Jr. taught. You never hear about that. And on Christ's resurrection, this is what we'll close with, he had this to say. The last doctrine in our discussion deals with the resurrection story. This doctrine, upon which the Easter faith rests, symbolizes the ultimate Christian conviction that Christ conquered death. From a literary, historical, and philosophical point of view, this doctrine raises many questions. In fact, the external evidence for the authenticity of this doctrine is found wanting. But here again, the external evidence is not the most important thing. For it in itself 
fails to tell us precisely the thing we must want to know. What experiences of early Christians led to the formulation of this doctrine? The root of our inquiry is found in the fact that the early Christians had lived with Jesus. They had been captivated by the magnetic power of his personality. The basic experience they had led to the faith that he could never die. And so in the pre-scientific thought pattern of the first century, this inner faith took outward form in the doctrine of the resurrection. End quote. Conclusion. Though there may be many good things that MLK contributed to society, we must ask, is the Christian church justified in using MLK as a guide in Christian ethics, activism, and political engagement? Or to ask the same question another way, we should ask, is it truly the wisest and best choice to take up MLK as a guide in teaching Christians how they should practice their faith in every sphere of life? It's a good question. Matt Chandler says yes. I would hire an MLK over a solid reformed white guy, he said. Because MLK, very important to him in his activism. Whatever good things MLK may have to say, have they not been said by more trustworthy and sound guides before him? Whatever he has to say that cannot be counted good, that can be counted as good, do not the Holy Scriptures speak to them directly? And if they don't, can we really say that they're so good? Shall we uphold a Gandhi as a guide for Christian living as well? What about a Mother Teresa? Would she be a good guide for Christian character? Or how about many of the Mormon prophets who did good things? Should they be held up as a good guide for Christian ethics? Are early Islamic teachers to be held up as well? Planned Parenthood offers other things besides abortions. But shall we send our people there for health care? I believe that any good thing that MLK may have contributed ought to be praised. But that the Christian church has no use for him in their theology or their practice. For me, MLK must be denounced as a rank heretic in the strongest terms and anathematized. His theological teachings have no more place in the church than Nietzsche. The church father, Tertullian, once said, What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? The Apostle Paul said, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Yep. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15. Therefore, we may and must also say, what does MLK have to do with Christianity? Amen. We have some time. I mean, we can take a few minutes. Would you guys like to take 10 minutes to ask questions and talk? Is the defense for MLK from evangelicals um, related to the things that he says that sound orthodox? No, the ones who actually know what they're 
you know, like the guys at the MLK 50 conference would be like, yeah, he had theological issues. They don't ever really acknowledge what they are, except for John Piper, he acknowledged what they were. That makes him sound like C.S. Lewis. Right, and he's not. Yeah. Right. C.S. Lewis had some theological issues. C.S. Lewis was a Christian with theological issues. Yes. MLK was a pagan. Yes. With Christian verbiage. Yes. Nick. Most of these quotes that I just read from were taken from his early manhood, 19 to uh, late 20s. Are there any like, um, evidence that he adapted those beliefs and to something that sounds more Christian? And there is, there is evidence that he took on in some aspects, specifically his doctrine of man um, and his doctrine of, of, of preaching – a more neo-orthodox or Bardian tone. It developed slightly towards that, but he still cr- criticized Bart heavily. In volumes four and five, you can read his sermons and some of his later writings on social gospel and things like that. Overall, no, he did not change his mind on these things. He just figured out, how can I still make Christianity useful and preach the truth as it is in Jesus, the scriptures say we can, just like Schleiermacher said, we confess it because the Bible confesses it. Except he was saying, this is how we adapt it, is what it looks like is, is, is politics, is ethics, is racial justice, things like that. But as his, his, the key core doctrines he believed did not change from this, no. Yeah, volumes one and volumes three of his collected works. So you go to the collected works of Martin Luther King Jr. and it's all of his all of his works. I think it's like at six volumes now. You can read them free online. And these are all autobiographical, correct? From his own hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he wrote. Yeah, these are all straight from his writings. Like you, you know, it's just like just like you know, you have like the collected works of Jonathan Edwards. It's just the same thing. Right. You know, you just open it up and there's his, his essays and. Uh, volumes four and five have his sermons and his writings on social ethics and social gospel stuff. Yeah, but he never changed his mind on who Jesus was. He never changed his mind on any of the stuff. He just figured it out how to use it to further his agenda. And actually, his dying was words before he was killed the next day. Um, he said, yes, I am excited to go to the eternal kingdom. Um, However, I would like to go further than that. I mean, like, you know, heaven where God is and everything. I would like to go further than that and sit with Aristotle and Plato. And he listened to all these guys, um, these philosophers. He was excited more so to go there and talk to these people. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, hell. Yikes. I mean, it's crazy how easily he would fit in with our modern text critics. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, the artifacts? Like, like, not in the sense of, like, his belief, because the, well, in a lot of ways, the belief of the modern text critics is the same. Like, right, the like, real ones. Like, think about, like, Walter Bauer. I mm-hmm. mean, like, Mark Ehrman. I mean, it's the same crap that yeah. Christianity evolved, and, and, you know, the, the reason that you have a shorter ending and a longer ending on Mark is because you have two different faith communities coming together, articulating two different gospels. Right. And it's two different religions. They assimilate it differently with the religions of the culture, the mystery religions, as he called them. Like, it's just all part of the course. Yeah. He was a second-rate ideologue with fancy language. Yes. 
That's an interesting part because he talks about reading the Bible with objectivity and not injecting your own opinion into it while reading the Bible subjectively and injecting your own opinion into it. Yep. Yeah. On that same note, update for you guys. Very exciting news. Uh, Klaus Wachtel um, went ahead and announced when he and some of the other guys from the Deutsche Bibelgeschaft Society, the German Bible Society, were at uh, Washington uh, this week at the Bible Museum. They went ahead and announced that the, the new edition of the, the New Testament is coming out, um, 2020, uh, or tw- between 2021 and 2022. It's going to have significant changes that will affect translation and interpretation, he admitted, in Mark and Acts. But there'll be more. Nice. So the NA28 revised, or it'll probably be the NA29. And I think we should it's just coming. Take, we, we just need to start taking bets as to like how they're going to spin that. Right? Like, yeah. I mean, I, I just want to see how Jimmy does. Jimbo, he or, yeah. Is he going to just be like prove himself to be a, a rabid fundy? And just, but just buckle down on the NA28? I mean, I, I, mean, I love that. Um, no, he'll go with the 29 or whatever it is, I'm sure. Um, I mean, even Peter Gurry admitted in his book. These changes affect not only the wording, but also doctrine, theology, and preaching. Yeah. And then Klaus Wachtel, one of the head editors, is like, yeah, new ones, it's going to have fundamental changes in the Gospel of Mark and Acts that will change not only translation, but interpretation. We should just go meet up with them at the next Black Lives Matter rally and ask them about it. We know they'll be there.